The Ringer MLB Show is presented by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. For God's sake, John, sit down. This is the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. I'm happy to wish you and yours a happy 4th of July. As always, we are proud to be part of the Ringer Podcast Network, home to On Shuffle, our latest podcast with host Micah Peters is a music podcast, and as of recently, one of the Guardian's top 50 podcasts of 2018. I would also encourage you to check out TheRinger.com, where we have ongoing coverage of the NBA free agency Goddardamerung, the World Cup, where I wrote about England manager Gareth Southgate, and baseball coverage, Ben Lindbergh wrote about two of the subjects of today's podcast, Twins Utility Man Williams Ostadio and Colorado Rockies pitcher John Gray. But first, we have Zach Cram here to talk about the swooning Washington Nationals and the surging Oakland Athletics. Contrary to last week when I joined Zach Cram, this week Zach Cram is joining me. I have rested the host seat back. How you doing, Zach? I'm all right. How are you? I'm happy to be back in control for once. I was worried you were not you weren't gonna give me the microphone back. Much like uh Juan Soto in the outfield, I guess. There you go. That's a segue. This is why I feel so threatened by you, is because you're you're so good at these segues. We're gonna talk about the Washington Nationals who uh are in the shitter, as the as the saying goes. They're 42 and 41. Uh as of the time of recording. They are in third place, seven games back of the first place Atlanta Braves. Uh, this is bad news. It's been an odd season for the Nationals. We, I think, use the roller coaster cliche a lot when talking about fluctuations in win loss record, but the Nationals really have been on a roller coaster. They were 11 and 16 in April, then 20 and 7 in May. No team in the majors won more games in May. And then since the start of June, they're 9 and 18 again. And in in June, the only teams that won fewer games are the Orioles, the Royals, and the Mets. So that, I guess, speaks to how poor the Nationals have been of late. And, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, the real omens for a team, last night Max Scherzer lost a game because he gave up a three-run double to opposing starter Rick Porcello, who is an American League pitcher. I'm not sure if it gets more in the dumps than that. Yeah, and you bring up Scherzer. The Nationals have lost, despite Scherzer pitching pretty well, they've lost four out of his last five starts. <clears throat> or sorry, he's taken the loss, rather, in uh, in four of his last five starts. Uh, I don't remember. if Yeah, they won the other game. So he's taken four losses and a no decision in his last five starts. And three of those losses have been by shutout. Uh, so it's just... and. There are there's other stuff. Bryce Harper is having it once again the streakiest hitter in baseball since June first. He's hitting 183, 330, 355. Uh Scherzer had some interesting comments reported by Chelsea Janes of the Washington Post. Uh and he's he's talking about trying to stay positive and uh you know, if you always want to just continue to beat yourself up and go home at night. They always think about bad, all the bad plays, all the mistakes you make. You'll never become a better ball player. Like this feels like somewhere between a buck em up speech by a veteran leader in a clubhouse and Thomas Paine's The American Crisis talking about the summer patriot and, you know, what we what we gain too cheaply, we esteem too little and so on. 
It's been an odd time for Nationals quotes, too. I pulled one out uh, last night in their loss against Boston. Washington fell by one run. And in the whole season, they're only 8-16 and 16 in one-run games. That's 26th in the majors, ahead of only some non-contenders, mostly last-place teams. And after the game, Bryce Harper was asked about it, and he said, you know, it doesn't matter, quote, losses are losses. If you lose a game, you're a loser. If you win a game, you're a winner, end quote. Which seems in the exact same vein like you're talking about. It, it doesn't seem like it's the most upbeat clubhouse right now. And, of course, I'm not in it. You're not in it either, but from the quotes emanating from it. And I kind of understand why, given how they've been playing. They've struggled to put together any offense whatsoever at catcher. Uh, you know, Pedro Severino hasn't hit. Matt Wieters has been hurt. He's been okay in the 23 games he's played. Spencer Keebooms had to come up uh, from the minor leagues. And they've all told everything doesn't look that bad. You know, their the run differential is, has them seven games over 500, which would put them about in a, a game, at, or sorry, a half game behind the Phillies and three and a half games behind the Braves. And as bad as as things have gone, they're not out of it yet. They've, you know, seven games is is a lot, but the Phillies and the Braves haven't really done a whole lot to to really put this division to bed, which is, you know, puts the Nationals in a similar position to the Dodgers, I guess. Or, you know, if you want to look a little bit farther back, the way we were talking about the Cleveland Indians earlier in the season, this is still, I think, the most talented team in the division. And they're still in, they're still in touch, but it's, you know, seven games back, they're not out of it, but they're going to have to turn this around relatively quickly. I think the injuries and underperformance of Bryce Harper have strained this roster specifically more than it might another roster if some of their players got injured and top talent was underperforming. Because the Nationals throughout the entire Strasburg-Harper era have really relied on top talent and not as much on depth. Uh, Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs puts together a post at the end of every season where he looks at what percentage of a team's total war comes from like the top 10 guys on the roster. And Washington routinely ranks first or in the top five in that set just because their top players are so, so good, but the depth behind them, not so much. And that's really shown this year with Strasburg going out and all of a sudden you don't have a fifth starter. And Harper underperforming you don't necessarily have the guys to account for that and compensate in the lineup. But like you say, I mean, Washington has the easiest remaining schedule in the National League right now. Part of that might be because they just play the Marlins and Mets a lot the rest of the way, and that's an advantage the Phillies and Braves have too. But even if you delve into the wild card, just the fact that Washington might be playing two, the two worst teams in the National League at the moment so much. Like They play those teams a lot just in July. I'm not sure Washington will still be in this position even at the trade deadline. And even if they the other games within the division, they're either playing two really terrible teams in the Mets or the Marlins, or they're playing the Phillies and Braves against whom they can make up ground easily. And I think a lot of this is it looks worse than it is because in the past couple of weeks, they've dropped five out of seven to the Phillies. I think if they go four and three in that stretch, they're in second place. They're, they're in a better position. They're close. They're a weekend and change away from the Braves. And I think this, all this looks a little bit different. And you talk about the depth. I don't necessarily, you know, last year when they won the division by 20 games, a lot of that was because of unexpected players 
either coming in through trade uh, or guys coming up essentially off the street. You know, I think of Edwin Jackson uh, as well as he pitched down the stretch for them last year. They had a bunch of of un you know unexpected contributors, and it's the same thing's happening this year. You know. As good a prospect as Juan Soto was coming up, nobody expected him to be this good this fast. You know, Jeremy Hellickson, I thought he was completely washed. You know, you they've they've gotten contributions from sort of back of the roster guys, and they've it's been a lot of the same story. They've already made a big trade for Kelvin Herrera. You know, I think calling this team top heavy might not really tell the whole story. They've just, you know, they've just suffered so much in terms of, you know, Harper's underperforming. And I think a lot of this honestly is cluster luck too, because they're eight and 16 in one run games. And, you know, part of that is a bullpen that has never, hasn't really been trustworthy since Drew Storen's early days in the, in the league. But, you know, some of this makes them look like sort of the bizarre Seattle Mariners. We'll talk more about Harper uh, in the offseason and as we approach there, I'm sure. But it is weird. Like in Fangraph's war right now, he's currently in a tie for 95th among position players. And I thought about doing you know that thing I like to do where I selectively pick guys who exceed expectations and say, oh, these unexpected players have more war than Harper. But there are so many of them at this point that's almost a moot exercise. Harper will after the season, only have one season with more than five war, which is kind of weird heading into free agency, but that's not... That's nec- wild. Yeah, that's, that's not necessarily yeah. the Nationals' biggest concern at the moment. I think getting guys like Daniel Murphy, who suffered a, a knee injury and then was out for much of the start of the season, since he's come back, he's hitting 203, 242, 288. Like you said, Ryan Zimmerman's still hurt. Getting these veteran players back on track is probably more important in the meantime, although they could certainly do for another scorching Harper month. Yeah. Well, let's go to a little bit of a happier story, a team that's actually well outperformed. It's They're one game over 500 in Pythagorean record and seven games over 500 in their actual real-life record. Before the season, uh, those of you uh, might remember this, you might not, we uh, split the, the league into three segments, and I had three different writers come on and give predictions for over-unders. And Zach was... I thought unreasonably bullish on the Oakland Athletics, and uh, not that you need an opportunity to gloat, but I'm giving you that they're they're doing really well. They're I, they would be competitive in pretty much any division other than the AL West and the AL East, and they're doing this with Matt Chapman, who I think is their best player on the bench. And so, what's going on? Have, you know, how did you turn out to be so right? I would like to take more credit than I think I actually deserve because much of the basis for my prediction was that Oakland had one of the best offenses in the league in the second half of last year. I thought they would even improve the season with a full season from the likes of Matt Olson and Matt Chapman. The offense has been pretty good, but nowhere near the top of the league. They're just slightly above average and runs per game and even like WRC+. What has helped them in recent weeks is that they're, before winning two out of three against Cleveland over the weekend, their preceding series when they went on a big winning streak came against the Padres, the White Sox, and the Tigers. So that looks pretty good. In the next week, they play Cleveland and Houston on the road. Then they play the Giants. So this might be the one week in the season I get to gloat. But I will still say that given that their over-under was somewhere in the low 70s before the season, they should definitely shoot past that. And who knows, if the Mariners stumble, I think the A's have 
passed the Angels. Okay, as, settled. They, okay, they have passed Relax. the Angels as the team most likely to capitalize. They have a really good bullpen. They have a lineup that produces from one to nine, even if. Like Jed Lowry aside, none of them have turned in star level performances. It's not necessarily the opposite of the Nationals, but it's a team with a lot more depth. And that has shown, as like you said, Matt Chapman was out for injury. He, I believe, is coming back tonight. And it's just a solid team from top to bottom. And I wouldn't count them out of a potential October appearance just yet. So I I wanna you just to tie this in with the Nationals here. Blake Trinan is a guy who's been traded. He's been involved in two Nationals uh, A's trades in his career. Um, and he was supposed to uh, compete along with Coda Glover and maybe Sean Kelly for the, the Nationals closer role last year. And he was part of that trade last July where uh, Washington brought in Sean Doolittle, who's been awesome, and Ryan Madsen, who's also helped uh, tamp down the the Nationals bullpen problems. And going the other way was Trinan, who was – Really inconsistent last year, but like you could tell, and uh, along with him, uh, Sheldon Noisy, an infield prospect, and Jesus Lazaro, who's been, uh, his stock has really gone up over the past 12 months as a prospect as well. But Trinan was a guy who, like, it, it was almost obvious that he was going to bounce back. And I would make this trade again if I were the Nationals, just because they didn't have the, op- they didn't have the luxury of, of waiting around for him to figure it out. But, Trinan has, he's got, let me look up uh, his numbers real quick. It's 089 ERA, um, 21 saves. Uh, he's he's uh, gone in a couple multiple inning appearances. His stuff, like the Rob Friedman pitching uh, pitching gifts uh, Twitter account has turned into a Blake Trinan fan account. Like he's pitching like one of the best closers in baseball. That's because I think he is one of the best closers in baseball. He and Sean Doolittle, for whom the Nationals traded Trinan, they've both been incredible this year. I think what's so impressive about Trinan is the multiple inning ability. He has 13 games this year where he's recorded at least four outs, and he's given up a run in only one of them, and that's when he pitched three innings. So he hasn't had a bad multi-inning game this year. He hasn't allowed more than an earned run in any game this year, which is, I guess, necessary to have a cumulative season ERA below one. But I think we don't necessarily talk about him in the Andrew Miller or Josh Hader role. One, because he's just not striking out quite as many batters, but also because he's the closer, we kind of don't think of him as this multi-inning weapon, even though he is just as much as these other arms we talk about more. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I could see him being one of those guys who, you know, just looking up and down this roster, uh, if you're looking for an all-star, you know, Chapman or Sean Manaya would be the like the guy that I would want to promote if I were choosing an all-star roster coming off this or, it, you know, an, an A's representative. But trying to, he's been, uh, he's definitely performed up to that level. He could be one of those guys who, who shows up at the all-star game and casual fans are like, who is this guy? And then they see him pitch for an inning and they're like, whoa, you know, this is, somebody worth following. So I'm, I'm excited. You know, Chapman is obviously my guy, uh, off the Oakland A's, but uh, I'm really impressed with what Blake Trinan's been doing this year too. The issue with Oakland moving forward, of course, is their, uh, pitching beyond Trinan is more of a question mark. They've had eight pitchers start at least five games this year. And half of them are on the disabled list right now, including some of their better pitchers, Trevor Cahill and Daniel Mengden. So if they get, those guys are back, sure, but it kind of feels like other recent Oakland A's rosters and that 
the caliber of the starting pitching staff isn't quite ne- quite there to to push Oakland over the hump. And I know I was joking about their chances of taking down Seattle before, but they really need to get the starting I don't think pitching. you were. I'm not positive that, that you were completely joking about that. Maybe just given how much we've talked about the playoff teams, the American League, it's only July 4th, and it's basically set on who the five will be. And yes, the Yankees and Red Sox and Astros and Mariners are battling for the division title, but between Oakland and the Angels and even the Rays, who are peaking up a little bit lately, I think we're kind of hoping that a team makes it more interesting in the second half. All right, well, we'll check in on that as... uh as events develop. But until then, thanks as always for coming on, Zach. Thank you. We'll be back with Meg Schuster to talk about our favorite player, Twins utility man, Williams Ostadio, right after this message from Burrow. Burrow has truly reinvented the luxury couch, bringing style and comfort to a whole new level. Burrow sofas are handcrafted in the same factories as other high-end retailers, but Burrow delivers them for much less. Their innovative, award-winning design allows for multi-hour Netflix binges, triple-header game days, and late-night work sessions. Customize your Burrow sofa to match your style by selecting the color, size, armrest height, and leg color that's perfect for you. Shipping is fast and free, and there's even a built-in USB charger. Enjoy 30 days of cozy in your comfortable Burrow risk-free or try a burrow at one of their partner showrooms today i have a burrow love seat in my living room it is comfortable it is sturdy it is stylish in a very clean minimalist way that i enjoy it's very easy to assemble it came in three boxes it took my wife and me maybe 10 minutes to put all together and charging your phone from your couch makes you feel like you're living in the future it is almost as good as flying cars and jetpacks if all that sounds good to you, you can go customize your own Burrow and get $75 off your order by going to Burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB for $75 off your purchase. Burrow makes the luxury couch for real life. All right, for the next segment, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, the ringer's Meg Schuster. How you doing? I'm great, Michael. How are you? I am basking in the glow of Williams <laughs> Ostadio, the man who brings our entire Ringer family together. Oh. He might be there's there's something for everybody to love about him. Truly, he's uh, so so special to me, and has been since Friday, since his call up. Uh, <laughs> just a really exciting time for all of us. Yeah. So there's so I love him. He was a former Phillies prospect. Uh, who never walks and never strikes out. Uh, he's got the, what we'd call the Bartolo Cologne body, <laughs> it, you know, an athletic body within a larger one. Um, he's played all over the field from third base to uh, center field to left field and all throughout the minors as a catcher. Ryan O'Hanlon loves him for his no-look pickoff throws yes. and because he uses him as a uh, a weapon with which to beat me about the head for loving uh, Jorge Alfaro. And Ben Lindbergh <laughs> wrote about him today. Can I say something? Yes. You know, ben is trying to horn in on the, the Williams Ostadio thing as if he discovered him, <laughs> as if various others of us have not already been on this bandwagon for months. And Ben is like trying. Ben got pissed when I told him that I was talking to you about Ostadio, and we were going to talk about something else later on the podcast. Wow. So, like, slow your roll, Ben. You wow. don't own Williams Ostadio. <laughs> no one owns him. He is our our collective large adult son. So, it, you being a Twins fan and having 
I don't know, it gets little else to be excited about. Um, yeah. You know, what try to try to encapsulate the joy of watching Williams Ostadio on uh, you know, play baseball. Yes, I would love to. Um, so I would just like to start off with a disclaimer first and foremost. I'm not exactly a member of what you might call baseball Twitter, so I wasn't fully aware of Ostudio until last week when he was called up. But now, you know, having loved him for the past five days, I would say that I have been fully indoctrinated into the Ostudio cult. Um, as you said, there's not really much else to get excited about about the Twins lately. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but they happen to be 10 games back in the Central Division, which is um, unforgivable. Uh, Byron Buxton got sent down again. Miguel Sano was sent all the way down to single A. Uh, Fernando Romero, who I came on this podcast and basically called the Twins savior earlier this year, uh, mm-hmm. is also not that. doing as well. Um, so it is, it's some wonderful to have something new to get excited about. Um it's really just learning about him over the past few days has been incredibly fascinating. I know Ben mentioned this in his piece, but he Astudio has walked just 2.5% of his plate appearances across AAA in the majors this year, and he's only struck out 4.5%. And league-wide, those numbers are nearly 9% in walks and just over 22% in strikeouts, which is crazy, like seems impossible, but uh, that's just mm-hmm. who he is. It's wild. And I, I love that kind of player just because the high walk, high strikeout guys tend to be guys like Aaron Judge who sort of sit on, you know, wait for their pitch so mm-hmm. they can crush it. And I just I just personally like players who are a little proactive as hitters. They're more fun to watch. They, you know, they're more aggressive at the plate. But when I talk about players like that, I think of guys like D. Gordon or Jose Altuve who can mm-hmm. slap and run. Right. And Asadio is just like, there's... I don't know, uh, you know, you look at him, he gets around well for a guy who's listed at five foot nine and 225. Yeah, he but had six stolen bases. You know, yeah, but at the same time, he's, you know, he's not Billy Hamilton out there. I just right. like that, you know, he's up there to hit and he's going to get his money's worth no matter what. Yeah. Ben, yeah. Ben noted this in his piece too that he uh, typically like, um, kind of across the upper minor leagues has finished with the lowest or close to lowest number of pitches seen per plate appearance. So I totally get what you're saying. It's I would wager that zero people in his entire career have ever had to tell him to get the bat off his shoulders. It's really fun to watch. Yeah, and uh, it, there is, I I worry about, that we get into this with Altuve and we get into this with Bartolo Colon, that there's like a little bit of weird body fetishism mm-hmm. when you get, when you come across a, a ball player who doesn't, you know, look like the archetypal ball player, it doesn't look like Byron Buxton or Mike Trout or Jason Hayward. Um, and, but it, at the same time, like there is something awesome about baseball being a sport that embraces players of all body types. If you can, like the hardest thing to do, they say in sports is put the bat on the ball mm-hmm. is to, is to hit a pitch baseball. And Asadio has that hit tool. And if you have that hit tool, it almost, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter what your other athletic gifts are. Yeah, absolutely. And granted, I mean, the Twins are in a position where, um, you know, their primary catcher went down. They definitely need a utility guy like Ostudio. So it makes sense why they call them up. But I totally agree. It's been so fun to see him kind of worked around in all of these different defensive positions and to see somebody like him, you know, just be able to be slotted pretty much anywhere and uh, to have some success. And it's this is 
you know, I don't want to say that the twins are in a good position or that they're fun to watch right now. <laughs> um, but one of the, like maybe the only fun thing about a team that's sort of scrambling to put the pieces together is you get guys like this. You know, the, this is what I, I said about the, the Astros is like the, when they tanked for all those years, the big impact was not just being able to draft Correa and Springer and McCullers. It was giving guys like unusual players like Dallas mm-hmm. Keuchel and Jose Altuve the time to and playing time to develop into useful major leaguers. And, you know, this could be and the Twins have a, a long track record of giving guys like Brian Dozier, uh, you know, the enough at bats to turn from kind of an iffy you know, college second base prospect and who, you know, at his peak, a really good player. You know, the mm-hmm. same goes for guys like Trevor Plouffe. And, um, you know, Asadio is, is another example of that. And, you know, possibly if you know, right now, what is he hitting through? We're going to extrapolate through, um, <laughs> through three games worth of stats so far, but he's five for 11 so far, you know, he's hitting yeah. 455 for his career. So I think we can call this a success. I do too. Yeah, 5 for 11, no strikeouts, no walks, as is typical. Um, And yeah, I mean, I I hope they give him a good chance. Why not, right? Like you said, there's not much else to get excited about. And they've used him so far at third base and in the outfield. I'd like to see him get some time as a catcher. I'd like to see him, you know, used in kind of all the different roles around the field and just get him those at-bats and get him comfortable in the majors and kind of see if, you know, he could turn into anything. You might as well. You have the... (laughs) You had the space for him. Yeah. And he's finding himself in situations when in his major league debut, he wound up uh, be, he came in as a left fielder and moved over to center field between Logan Morrison and Robbie Grossman and uh, (laughs) Aaron Gleeman, who's the editor in chief of baseball prospectus and a Minnesotan and a longtime twins fan Mm -hmm. speculated that that might be the worst defensive outfield in major league history. So he's, he's finding himself in, in all sorts of weird situations. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that such a twins thing to do to just stick him in the middle of the outfield and say, good luck. And we hope you do well. (laughs) It's like, it's a stereotypical twins thing, but like, this Twins team was supposed to have, you know, Buxton, Rosario, mm-hmm. and Max Kepler were supposed to be a, an exceptionally athletic outfield. We're mm-hmm. seeing that, you know, the the Tad Levine, Derek, uh, Derek Falvey twins sort of buck some of the uh, the traditional twin stereotypes. And Ben talked about this in his piece, too, in terms mm-hmm. of, and, you know, you brought this up with Fernando Romero, too. They're bringing in guys who are more modern baseball players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, it has been fun to watch them kind of building this team. Obviously, it hasn't worked out this season exactly how they would have liked, um, you know, with Buxton kind of slumping, Sano not doing as well, you know, some of these big, bigger name guys that they expected to be at another level at this point, which has been disappointing. But, you know, it is kind of fun to bring up somebody like Astudio uh, just to kind of I don't know, jump some life back into this roster and get people excited about, you know, another player to watch when your quote unquote superstars aren't doing so well. Yeah. Um, I'll, after the podcast, I'll retweet the, the picture that I've had saved in my, my Twitter favorites uh, for three and a half years now of, of Asadio in Philly's camp, standing next to now Rangers outfielder, Carlos Toshi, you know, Asadio is five, nine, two, 225 and uh, Carlos Toshi is 225 inches tall and weighs <laughs> about 59 pounds. And it's, it's one of my favorite baseball pictures of all time. Um, but yeah, well, this is, I mean, we could talk about him for this, the rest of this podcast and every <laughs> podcast to come. And if Ben has his way, we might, uh, but we'll check in uh, later on and see how the twins are doing. And it's always a, a pleasure to have you on the pod. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
All right, thanks, Meg. Now let's call to the bullpen and bring out our closer, Mr. Ben Lindbergh. All right, I'm joined, as always, finally by a man who is uh, upset to have missed out on Williams Astadio talk. <laughs> ben Lindbergh, do, do you have a couple words to say about the man who is who's been declared our collective large adult son before we get started on John Gray? You know, I've said and written many words about Williams in other places, so maybe I will let what Meg said stand. But I will say that I don't understand Williams Estadio any better than I understand John Gray. They are both perplexing to me, but Estadio makes me very happy and John Gray just makes my head hurt. Yeah. So you wrote about John Gray and over the weekend uh, when he was demoted, we had, I think, one of our livelier Slack conversations. and. Yes. I thought would translate well to the podcast because John Gray ha- has been one of the Rockies' best pitchers, uh, not just now, now, but I don't know, for the past decade. Um, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he's going to the minors and there is, it's a bizarre case because I don't remember a case of the peripherals and the results not matching up like this, that ex- quite so extreme. Yeah, no, and there to, hasn't been one. Yeah, so. and to and to be... And for this to happen um, in the, you know, within in the era of DRA, and we're finally getting beyond like the very base, uh, you know, twenty five year old Voros McCracken dips theory right. that you know we're just throwing our hands up at Babbitt. So you know maybe there is something I don't know, deeper. You know what this comes down to, and we'll you know we can outline the the arguments point by point, but it comes down to either the Rockies are doing something really stupid by ignoring the peripherals or they're way smarter than we are and know something beyond the publicly publicly available data, not just FIP, which is kind of crap, but like DR, you know, DRA says that John Gray has been outstanding and all, mm-hmm. you know, all the underlying numbers do. Yeah, right. Anything except ERA essentially says that John Gray has been good and that he's been better than he was before in that he is striking out more guys. He has really lowered his contact rate by a lot. I mean, there are more advanced stats than FIP, but FIP is fine for this purpose. We can just say that only seven pitchers this year have a higher park-adjusted ERA, but only eight pitchers this year have a better park-adjusted FIP. So John Gray, by the defense-independent stats or the more advanced stats, has been one of the best pitchers in baseball. And by actual runs allowed, which matters in some ways, he has been one of the worst pitchers in baseball. And so... In most cases, you can just kind of point to the advanced stats and say that they predict future ERA better than actual ERA does. That is definitely true. If you just want to make a blanket statement, you're better off going with the non-ERA stats than the ERA stats in most cases. They will tell you what is going to come more accurately than what has already happened. But in this case, it just is such an enormous disparity And Gray himself seems convinced that he needs to work on things, as do his catchers and people with the Rockies and Bud Black and people who've watched John Gray. And you kind of wonder, well, is it just because they are seeing him give up all these runs and he's seeing himself give up all these runs and he's being deceived? He's buying into the idea that he's not actually been good and maybe he's just been unlucky this time? Or is there something more complicated going on? And we can go even to other you know traditional luck markers. Out of 88 qualified starters, he is dead last in strand rate. 
Mm-hmm. He is dead last in Babbitt by did you did you look at this gap? How big the the Babbitt gap is? <laughs> I know he's almost at four hundred, and he has the highest career Babbitt of any pitcher with at least four hundred innings pitched right now. But and, no, I don't know the gap. And part of that is probably just pitching in cores. You know, we talk yeah. about the the altitude effect, but because to counteract that, they made the outfield gigantic. So you know. You'll you'll run a higher Babbitt in course, but he's ahead of second place Jason Hamill by fifty five points, <laughs> which is outrageous. It is. Um, it's the difference between you don't even get you you get off the the first page of thirty on the Fangraphs leaderboard. I don't even know what the that's the equivalent of the distance between seven or second and whatever. Um, and he's sixteenth uh, in home run fly ball rate, which is a little bit above average. Probably has something to do with pitching in Denver, but it just looks so obviously like like luck that I almost don't trust it because this feels like a very 2008 insight to have. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, if your ERA is close to six and you're supposed to be an ace, obviously this is going to screw with you mentally. Yeah. And the thing that really stuck out to me is that he has been worse with runners on and it's not just the BABIP. It's not just that he's allowing more hits on balls and play in those situations, but he's actually just had worse peripherals. So when the bases are empty, he has basically been Max Scherzer as far as his ability to strike out hitters without walking hitters. But when runners are on base, he has been a below average starter in those situations. So that kind of makes you wonder, well, what's going on here? And often you would say, well, maybe it's that he's switching from the windup to the stretch, as a lot of pitchers do. And maybe there's some mechanical inconsistency going on here. But that's not the case with Gray either, because he is pitching out of the stretch or sort of a stretch-like motion all the time. So he's not changing things up. And I've dug deeper. I've looked at other stats that are available kind of on a pitch-by-pitch level. I got some stats from Stats Inc., And his command has been a little bit worse with runners on base and just his pitch quality, irrespective of the results, has been a bit worse with men on base. But the stats say that even though he's been a bit worse in those situations, he still has been above average. So it's really hard to figure out what's going on here. And right, I don't want to just have the reflexive reaction that, hey, his FIP is lower than his ERA. That means he's been good and that means he'll be better because We talk about the concept of regression all the time, but there's more than one type of regression, I think. There's the regression where you're pitching great and you're doing everything right, but the batted balls just are falling in too often and you're getting looped and bled to death, right? And so if that's the case, you just need to keep doing what you're doing and you'll be better with no change. But sometimes pitchers actually are doing things in a suboptimal way. And the regression comes from them making a change. They actually fix something. And so it looks like, oh, well, their luck just turned around. But really, it's that they actually improve something. So you have to actually make your own luck in some ways. And so that might be what's going on with Gray here. But it's really hard to identify exactly what he's doing wrong. Yeah. And that's it, it just it feels too big to be just luck. That's mm-hmm. the I think that's where I get stuck on this. Not only that that. It's a very like saying that it's luck and just washing your hands of it and expecting nothing to change is, you know, it's an outmoded way of looking at things. And it's a way that I, you know, people and, and approaches who were once on the cutting edge of the industry, it's a very easy way for the, for people who, who operate like that to make themselves look foolish now. Um, but there, you know, there are other things. His line drive rate is up a little bit. His hard contact rate is up a little bit, but not, you know, not to the extent that you'd expect him to. Uh, be pitching like, you know, 
whatever replacement level. Uh, I can't think of any 1993 Rocky starters, yeah, and it's they, killing me right now. Almost any Rocky starter. <laughs> it's <laughs> <But>. it, right. <laughs> um, but you're, no, it's right. I, I was talking to Rocky's broadcaster, Ryan Spielborgs, and he was saying that Babbitt can be deceptive because if you're just throwing a bunch of meatballs and you're missing in the center of the zone all the time, well, of course, you're going to have a high Babbitt. If you or I pitched in the major leagues, we would have a high Babbitt too, but it wouldn't be I don't think I'd luck. throw enough strikes to have a high Babbitt. Yeah, that might, that, that might be true. <laughs> I think I'd have a high walk rate. I don't know that I would necessarily yeah, have a... There would be no balls in play. It would just be right. home runs. But, you know, you see what I'm saying. If you're making a lot of mistakes, then in theory, you could have a high Babbitt for reasons that are related to your performance, not just luck. But again, it's really hard to look and see. I've looked at John Gray's actual pitches with runners on and bases empty, and it's not as if he is just suddenly throwing a, a bunch of balls right down the middle of the plate with men on. So it's really hard to figure out. But I do think you know there was a reflexive reaction where it was, oh, it's the Rockies, and look at his ERA and look at his FIP. They are just looking at the ERA and they're making the mistake that teams would have made 20 years ago. No one's making that mistake anymore. I know in the past there were pitchers who maybe developed the wrong reputation or were sent down because they'd been allowing a lot of runs unjustly. But I think now we're at the point, and I know the Rockies have brought this on themselves to a certain extent with some of the decisions that they've made over the years. But even the Rockies, they are not just looking at the ERA and saying, oh, pitcher allows lots of runs, pitcher gets demoted to AAA. You know that they're thinking about more than that. And Gray was really, uh, you might not be interested in, in this part of the argument, but I don't really care that much. College Gray's baseball? part of, yeah, well, the draft. Uh -huh. um, so they... They went in on a couple of very hard throwing player or very hard throwing pitchers at the beginning of the draft in the past five years, not just John Gray, but Riley Pint and Robert Tyler out of Georgia. And Pint and, and Tyler are not progressing the way that they would have expected. But Gray was, you know, he was a potential one one guy along with Chris Bryant and Mark Appel yeah. in 2013. And he, he, uh, earn that stature on the virtue of just popping up from like mid 90s to a guy who's touching triple digits as a as a junior at Oklahoma and you know there's there were rumors or not you know not rumors this is quantifiable but like talking about his his velo being down for um for a start or two and there's always been I've just always I was an appell guy in that draft and obviously that opinion is not <laughs> aged well yeah. uh, but part of the reason was I never really trusted gray to keep all of this together for for a long period of time and you know whether that meant getting hurt or some sort of mechanical collapse, but he's been good enough in the majors for long enough that I really, you know, it started to trust him as a potential frontline starter. Yeah, he's been their opening day starter two consecutive seasons. He was, of course, their wild card game starter. That didn't go so well. No, yeah, we shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, he's very promising. He has lots of excellent stuff. He throws hard. He's got a good slider. He's got a good curve. He has all of the tools that you would think would go along with the top of the rotation starter. And last year, it even looked like he'd kind of figured out Coors Field in a way because he changed his pitch selection when he was at home and on the road. So when he was at home, he'd throw more fastballs and he'd get more grounders. And then he'd go on the road and he'd throw more breaking balls and get more strikeouts. And it was like he had cracked the Coors Field code. And then suddenly the code must have changed. I guess someone changed the locks. But 
you know, you hear all these people kind of question his focus and his mental abilities on the mound. And he has himself said that he has at times had trouble focusing or retaining the right mindset. And you just want to be careful about a guy getting labeled with that when mm-hmm. you know that there has to be some bad luck at play here. Particularly, that's a hard, it's a hard place to pitch for anybody. Sure. And you know, to the point where it's not just like physically hard because of the altitude, but like it'll screw with you if if you see balls drop in or your curveball's not breaking as much as, as it should. Like that, you know, if, if Gray's talking about his own focus, that's one thing, but just throwing that out there seems it's one step of evolution beyond saying, oh, he's got a 380 Babbitt, that'll normalize. Right. Not that mental skills are not part are of not what, a thing. Yeah, makes it's a, just a major league. The, the overwhelming majority of people who talk about that publicly aren't in a position to make right, exactly. a judgment. Yeah, we don't know exactly what's going on in John Gray's head. And for most pitchers, by the time you actually make Make it to the majors. I think the guys who yeah. would have struggles with those sorts of issues, with concentrating, with performing under pressure, have probably been weeded out in high school or at least double A. So he's mm-hmm. down in triple A. I don't know how long he'll be there. You know, he gets a couple starts. The All Star break is coming up. It's not a bad time to do this if you're going to do this, and you know he'll be back. And you know, people are talking about well, if he has trouble focusing by his own admission, then do you just make him into an Archie Bradley, and he's a two inning weapon? That would be such. That would be such it a seems waste. Like it would because to... he has done this. He did it last year. He had no issues last year pitching with men on. He was even better in those situations. So you know he has the capacity to do it and he could just be so valuable and just a commodity that the Rockies have hardly had at all in their franchise's history. So you really hope that he can get this straightened out or that the universe just writes itself and suddenly he has better results. Yeah. One thing that I I am sort of relieved is he's got enough service time uh, where this isn't going to screw with his free agency. That was the first thing I looked at because, you know, um, Daniel Bram of Dodgers Digest wrote about the Dodgers sort of messing around with the way they brought Walker Bueller back mm-hmm. that might cost Bueller a year of free agency. Um, you know, it's it, Gray's got th- two months of service time booked. If this takes more than two months, then, yes, then uh, really for him to come problem. back, then yeah, then he, you know, then he's in a position where he doesn't have to worry about <laughs> his free agency in 2021. Anyway, yeah. um, would you change the subject a little bit? Would you like to know where Williams Acidio is playing today? Sure. Tell me. Second base, starting at second base. Man, he has played every position. He's even pitched. That's the best thing. He pitched last year in AAA, and he threw two innings, scoreless, of course, and naturally, he did not allow a walk, and he did not record a strikeout. Even when he's on the mound, he is an anti-true outcomes guy. Awesome. All right, we're going to go watch Williams Acedio and uh, get this podcast up, but this is like a legitimately fascinating completely bizarre thing to happen. And I'm happy to to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. Yeah, I think so too. All right, that'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach Cram, Meg Schuster, and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thanks to Max Scherzer, Blake Trine, and Williams Ostadio, and John Gray for providing content for us to discuss. Thanks to Evan Campbell for producing today's episode. And thank you for listening. Happy 4th of July. Enjoy the baseball, and I'll see you next time.